So, Lord God, we pray that we would proclaim your power and your glory. We pray that, Lord God, we would preach your word. Or even more, we pray that your word would somehow preach us. Amen. Yeah, I know, yeah, you're impressed, right? How many of you have danced the Macarena? 20 years ago, everybody was doing the Macarena, okay, right? So you know the Macarena, so stand up right now, stand up, wherever you are. Emma, you don't have to, but you can if you want to, okay? Stand up right now, Get stand up, okay? And, and this is what I want you to do. Why are you too cool to stand up, Brett and Gordon? Okay, all right, when I say go, I want you to... Dance the Macarena. Ready? One, two, three, go. Yeah, it looks really bad from up here. I mean, you're not coordinated. You're out of sync. So what's, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? No music. Right, no music. So now let's try it with the music when I say go. Okay, ready? Go. Oh, okay, okay, that, that's, that's good, Sasha. I, I think maybe that was worse. Um, it's hard to dance without the music. And it's maybe even harder to dance with the wrong music, right? So it's kind of like when you, you know, you're trying to remember a song in your head and another song is playing on the radio. That's, that's, that's just like almost impossible. Okay, so let it all out now. Ready? Yeah, all right. You, you know what messed me up? I started thinking about the sermon. Anyway, enough silliness, okay? It's time to preach. So sit down. Um, this is our 41st sermon from the book of Romans, and I was hoping to finish by the new year, but next week we're kind of having a special christmas theme service, so we're not going to make it, but I think we can get to kind of Paul's main theme and then wrap up a lot of the salutations and th- it's cool stuff, but wrap it up in, in the new year. For 12 chapters, Paul has written about the fact of our justification in Christ, that that's happened. It's a fact. And then for three chapters, he's been writing about ethics, what we should do. But it's really not what we should do so much as what we do do when we trust what God has done. So Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. Too often it has been overlooked that the opposite of sin is not virtue. No, the opposite of sin is faith, as is affirmed in Romans 4.23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And for the whole of Christianity, it is one of the most decisive definitions that the opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. That's where we ended last week. Romans uh, 14, 23, 
Whatever does not proceed from faith, right, which means trust, is sin. 15.1. We who are strong, that's strong in faith, have an obligation, ophelo, something owed. Remember Paul told us, owe no one anything except to love them. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. But with is added by the translator. So when you bear with something, you just tolerate it, right? But he's saying, um, bear the failures of the weak. It's what, a, it's what my body does. If one member of my body fails, the rest of the members of my body bear that failure as if it were their own failure. Bear the failings of the weak. Not consign them to endless conscious torment. Bear the failings of the weak. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us, and you've got to let this happen, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Now that's a wild thought. Jesus didn't please himself. He pleased you. He pleased his neighbor. He pleased his father. He pleased his neighbor. He pleased you. Doesn't that mean that when he spoke the woes to the Pharisees, he was pleasing them? And when they nailed him to the tree, he was pleasing them. And when he came on the clouds of heaven, as Jerusalem is destroyed below him, what is he doing? He's pleasing Jerusalem. And when he allows temptations, trials, tribulations, sufferings to fall on you, what's he doing? He's pleasing you. I know we're all a bit confused by that, right? And yet absolutely every parent understands that. If you're not willing to displease a toddler, (laughs) that toddler will never ever be pleased. If you're not willing to make them unhappy, they can never be happy. It's called discipline. Parents that are so insecure that they must always please their children in order to gain the approval of their children, they aren't pleasing their children. They're pleasing themselves at the expense of their children, hating their children, and creating very unpleasant adults incapable of experiencing pleasure. You should know that unless there's some sort of congenital defect, every little baby is born with this remarkable ability to receive love. And I think we would call that ability faith. They'll look in your eyes. They'll see themselves. They'll look in your eyes, connect to your soul, and then they'll imitate everything that you do. But at a certain age, they begin to judge themselves, uh, protect themselves, save themselves, justify themselves, convince themselves that it's all about them. And even though love is all around them, they can't perceive love or respond to love. In fact, they think they are the creators of love, and God is love. That's just, that's just nuts. They're asleep in a dream that turns into a nightmare that is the most terrifying prison of all. Loneliness, death, and hell. And in this state, it's impossible to dance. And life is a dance. It's a communion of sacrificial love. One cell sacrificing for another cell. One body part bleeding life into another body part. Each member sacrificing its strength for the weakness of its neighbor, not pleasing the self, but pleasing the neighbor, and then experiencing the pleasure of of all. That dance is love. That dance of love is life. And when everyone dances, it is absolute, supreme joy. You know, little children, toddlers, will just dance at the drop of a hat. You ever notice that? But Pharisees make very poor dancers. Jesus said, you must become like little children. And yet Paul wrote, I have given up childish ways. Not childish, but childlike, Jesus said. Do you know what it is that makes a child most childish? Isn't the most childish child 
the child that thinks he or she is grown up. Right? So, are you grown up? In other words, how often do you just start dancing? My answer is not very often. Last week I shared about my Damascus Road experience, like kind of like Paul's Damascus Road experience. After Jesus just decimated my ego, <laughs> told you about that in the morning, he revealed his unconditional love, and I'm telling you, my heart would not stop dancing. And I experienced absolutely unspeakable joy. Pleasure. It turns out that Jesus is the ultimate people pleaser. He's not dependent on their approval, but he's out to please people. People pleaser. He didn't please himself, and yet he sacrificed himself for the joy that was set before him. That's what the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. And that's an eternal communion of limitless pleasure. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The reproaches of those that reproached you fell on me. So Paul is saying that Jesus is praying, Father, they're all angry at you. Everybody's angry at you, and they're taking it out on me. And Jesus isn't just praying this. He's, he's singing this. Because Paul's quoting Psalm 69. Psalm means song. Psalm 69, which he already quoted in Romans 11 when he wrote this. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. Now, David says that according to Paul, Psalm 69. But here, quoting the same Psalm, Psalm 69, he writes as if, Christ is singing the song. And check out Psalm 69 sometimes. It's like so many other songs. It's like schizophrenic. In 69.21, David sings, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, that's obviously Jesus singing somehow through David, right? 69. 22. In, it's 21. In, in verse 22, next verse, it's like David sings about his own anger toward his enemies. Let their own table become a snare and a, and a trap. And yet Jesus sings about, has already sung about bearing all the anger of all in 69, in 69.9, which Paul just quoted. So check this out. Even as David sings vengeance, Paul seems to think that Jesus somehow sings along and transforms David's vengeance into the vengeance of God. Let their table become a stumbling block and a retribution. That's how Paul quotes it. Paul has already taught us that Jesus is the stumbling block and that the retribution of God is not David's table, but the table of the Lord. It's grace in the place of sin transforming the meaning of all the wrath. It's like David sings his song and Jesus sings David. He sings a new David into the failure of the old David and David gives birth to a new humanity. That we might have hope, writes Paul. Hope. I think I danced the hardest and best of all at my wedding banquet, for it was really the culmination of decades of painful hope. Hope is like a container for love and life and joy, but it's created through faith in the midst of fear and doubt and pain. Hope is space for grace and grace is unconditional love. That we might have hope. Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, literally with one mind or one passion in one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Harmony 
is what Paul has been talking about for the last three chapters. When singers and instruments harmonize, millions of different individual vibrations in the atmosphere come into perfect phase, one with another. Symphonia, it's, it's music. Harmony in a human body is 40 trillion different cells taking and receiving from each other at just the right moment and in just the right way. Paul just told us that we're all one body and individually members one of another, whether we're aware of it at any particular moment or not. Heaven is a universe of diversity, perfectly unified in freedom, by one logic, harmonizing all things in each and every moment. That's the plan for the fullness of time, according to Paul. And he uses this word in, Col- in Ephesians and here, only two places, anakephaliao. It means to unite, bring together under one head, one, one mind, one reason, one logic. The glory of God is man, that is Adam, that is humanity, fully alive, wrote Irenaeus in the second century. Therefore, writes Paul, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the, glo- for the glory of God. Paul just told us at the start of 14, welcome um, the weak in faith. Welcome the one who is weak in faith, but not to argue. Welcome him. Now he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As Christ, When did Christ welcome you? When you were a Christian? or while you were crucifying the Christ. Welcome proslambano. That literally means reach out and take by the hand. In other words, stop arguing and start dancing. And why don't we? Why don't we join the dance? Check this out. The next verse is all about circumcision. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now that is a terrible translation because of all of our hang-ups about sex, I think. But Young's literal reads as follows. Christ became a ministrant, a minister of circumcision. Christ became a circumciser for the truth of God in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and, or moreover, in order that the Gentiles, the ethnos, the peoples, the nations might glorify God for his mercy. Now, remember we spoke about this stuff in Romans chapter 10. Moses told the Israelites that, remember, the word was in their heart, and we know that the word was all around them, and yet they couldn't do the word. They couldn't love as they had been loved, for their hearts had not been circumcised. The the logic in their heart could not connect to the logic that was all around them. So God promises the fathers, Moses and the fathers, and the prophets that one day he would circumcise their heart. Singular. The early church stopped circumcising new believers for they believed what Paul taught, Romans 2.28. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. And like Paul teaches in Colossians, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith, not in, but of the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You know, Jesus is the powerful working of God, and we're saved by the faith of Jesus, rising in the tomb of our hardened hearts, our circumcised hearts. It's faith that responds to love and begins to hope for more than just itself. The Jews were blessed to be a blessing, but they tried to keep the blessing to themselves. Now we're the Jews. That's what Paul is saying. He says it in Romans. And we are blessed to be a blessing, but it seems we want to keep the blessing to ourselves. Verse 9, in order that the Gentiles, that's the not us, the nations, the peoples, might glorify God for his mercy, writes Paul. As if God like consigned all the disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would ek homo lageo, give praise to God. 
next sentence in Romans, verse 9, that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. Therefore, I will praise you, ekhomo lageo, speak the word out together among the Gentiles and sing your name. Now, check this out. Paul is quoting the Song of David, which is in 2 Samuel uh, 22, which David sang, and now I quote, the day God delivered him from all his enemies. So everybody wonders, what was the day that God delivered David from all of his enemies? That's kind of confusing, especially when you read his story and realize that David is his own worst enemy. And once again, it's tough to know really who's singing. This is also Psalm 18. David sings as if he's descended into Sheol. He claims to be, David claims to be blameless and the head of the nations, and then to praise God among the nations. We know that David descended into Sheol. Scripture really says that, but, but he wasn't blameless. He was not the head of the nations, and there's no record of him singing among the nations. Well, except for that, we are singing his songs right now. And Jesus like sang his songs almost like in... in incessantly, over and over, even on the cross. On the cross, he sings David's words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. But isn't it more accurate to say that David was singing Jesus' words, even as Jesus was singing David a thousand years before he hung on the cross? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is verse 29 of the same psalm. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Amazing. Romans 15, 9. As it is written, therefore will I appraise you among the Gentiles, the nations, and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And now Paul is quoting the song of Moses, which he expects us to recognize and now connect to what he's already said to, about, about that to, to us um, from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Where Paul, remember, he gathers all of Israel before they enter into the promised land, right before he dies and before Joshua leads them into the promised land. And he tells them that the word is near them and in their hearts so they can do it, but they won't do it because their hearts are uncircumcised. God then tells Moses that the people will, quote, whore after other gods, his anger will burn against them, and he will forsake them. But he will not forsake Joshua who is with them. Joshua is Hebrew for Jesus. Jesus who will not leave or forsake us, his body, his bride, his house. God then tells Moses to teach Israel this amazing song so that they would sing this song hundreds, thousands of years later when they know that they have been wrong. The song is basically the history of humanity and ends with these words. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will atone for his land and his people. Rejoice, O Gentiles, O nations, with his people. That's everyone. He atones for everyone by destroying what keeps everyone from hearing his love song, and that's us. Our arrogant old selves, everyone needs to be saved from themselves. Themselves. 1510, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And now once again, Paul quotes from the hymn book of the people, the book of Psalms, Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations, and let all the peoples extol him. Let them. For 1,500 years, the church has taught us that some people cannot extol him. So we must hope that, must not hope that all would extol him, because, well, that's impossible. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse is David's father, so the root of Jesse is the root of David. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, listen, I am the root of David, and I am the offspring or the seed of David. So if Jesus is in you, the seed of David, the root of David is in you, and like David, you are, quote, the anointed in Greek, that's Christos, Christ. 
You're his body. But are you dancing? You know, David had all kinds of problems, didn't he? But do you remember how he danced? God seemed to like that. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So check this out. Paul quotes the, psalm of, the song of, of David, the king, the song of Moses, the law, the song of the people, the psalms, and now the song of Isaiah, the prophet. Paul, like, like Jesus, has been quoting Isaiah incessantly. And now he quotes the prophecy that begins in chapter 9 of Isaiah, runs through 11, but it's not just a prophecy, it's, it's poetry. And so it's most likely intended uh, to be sung as a song. We even sing it today. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a, a son is given. And the government, this is, he's going to be ruling everything. The government will be upon his shoulders. He'll rule from his throne, wherever that is. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Ecclesia, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no, no end. That means hell cannot withstand his government and his peace. Song continues in chapter 11, verse 9. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will rule the nations. Romans 15, 12. The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the nations. In him will the nations hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. Not some joy, all joy and peace. Not some peace, all peace. In believing, that's faith. Remember, Paul spent the entire book teaching us faith is a gift. May God fill you with all joys and all peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound, you may overflow with hope. Now listen closely, even though I got intense there for a second. I do not want to say this with any animosity, but only with gratitude for what God has done. But 15 years ago, the sanctuary met for the very first time because we had been defrocked. I was defrocked. You, many of you were defrocked with me for simply hoping that every knee would bow and every tongue give praise because Jesus, the Logos of God, would accomplish that for which he was sent. We were kicked out of church for hoping, because all I was doing at that time was saying, for hoping that the Savior would save. And I'm not making this stuff up. You go back and research it. What the hell was that about? How the hell does that happen? How is it that people read Romans, even memorize Romans, teach classes on Romans, and conclude that Paul is saying, not every knee will bow and every tongue give praise, not all consigned to disobedience will receive mercy, not all made sinners in Adam will be righteous in Christ, and not all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God will be justified by his grace through faith as a gift, but in fact be endlessly tortured by God, who is love. How? How is it that we say we believe the good news, but we live like we've never heard it? In selfishness, in greed, jealousy, disharmony, unfaithfulness. How is it that Paul could study Scripture as a Pharisee for all these years? Because remember, Paul's doing all this from memory. You can't carry around a Torah scroll. They're huge. How is it that Paul could say as a Pharisee for all those years, obtain all that knowledge of good and evil, and conclude that it all meant that he should find the followers of Jesus, the Messiah, and kill them? I hope you realize that Romans is not in disagreement with the Old Testament, like some people say. I mean, Romans is basically a recitation of 
the entire Old Testament. So it's as if Paul had read the score. He had memorized all the notes, tried to play every instrument. He even taught courses on music theory, and yet he had never actually heard the music. And you see, it's hard to dance if you cannot hear the music. And it's just impossible to dance the dance, the right dance, if you're listening to the wrong song or just noise. To what shall I compare this generation, asked Jesus. It is like the children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. Well, on the road to Damascus, Paul met the singer of the song who circumcised his heart. And then Paul began to dance. And check this out. All the old notes were still there. But now they comprise an entirely new song for they're all harmonized by the logic of love. The resurrected word of God. If you follow science, you, you may know that the standard model of particle physics now, it now speaks of all reality as the manifestation of vibrations of meaning in this like ubiquitous everywhere quantum field. In other words, all reality is the manifestation of a song. It's a dance. In the Cimmerillion, J.R. Tolkien describes the creation of the world as the manifestation of God's song. But at one particular moment, when God is singing everything into existence, the dark angel Melchor begins to sing discordant notes, which are evil. And yet God sings those discordant notes into an even greater harmony, which is grace. And check this out. He even does it through a hobbit named Frodo. When Frodo throws the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom. All of Middle-earth is transformed into the age to come. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan sings Narnia into existence. And yet there's one man who can't hear the song. Instead, all he hears in his mind is, is growling. His name is Uncle Andrew, the magician. Magicians won't surrender to the word, for they seek to use the word. They, they hold on to the ring of power, and they use it to gain control. Magicians and Pharisees won't surrender to the song, so they can't dance. And of course, Lewis and Tolkien are just plagiarizing Scripture. They owe God money on this one, I think. In Scripture, God speaks all creation into existence with a word, debar in Hebrew and logos in Greek. Debar also means thing. Isn't that cool? He speaks things. And logos or, is where we get our word logic. It means meaning or, or reason. The logos is like the rhythm that the Stoics talked about it this way. It's like the rhythm that undergirds all of reality. And so God not only speaks creation, you see, he sings creation into existence. And for five days, everything dances to the sound of his voice. But on the sixth day, he sings his word, and something refuses to dance. It's a golem. That's Hebrew for unformed substance, half-made substance. His name is Adam. Or should I say, our name is Adam. You know, Scripture speaks of space as something like this, a dark void, chaos, surrounded by logos, which is the song. Creation happens when God sings his song into the void. And Scripture pictures time as something like this, six days of linear time surrounded by God's time, which is animated by the eternal song. Creation happens when eternity touches time, which is always now. 
If you've ever tried to dance, you know that you kind of have to be in the now. You can only dance in the present moments. When I start thinking about my sermon in a few minutes, that I stop dancing. And Scripture pictures me as something like this. The me that God has created imprisoned in the me that I think I have created. My true self imprisoned in a false self that is just an illusion. A child of God imprisoned in an ego. Absolutely surrounded by song, but unable to dance because I refuse to surrender control. Why? Well, somehow I've come to believe that my control is freedom. When in reality, it's the deepest bondage. Freedom is to will what you want and to want what you will. It's, not, it's to not have a divided will, right? But when you're trying to dance, you're consciously imposing your will on each and every member of your body. Step right, step left, spin around, do si do. As long as you notice and have to count the steps, right, C.S. Lewis, you're not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. But when you do dance, when you do dance, the rhythm, the logos, it bypasses your conscious mind, or at least your conscious control, and it animates your entire body, right? You lose yourself in the music, and then you find yourself dancing, and you think, wow, I'm having fun. This is really, this is really fun. It's work that's rest. It's perfect order that's freedom. You cannot comprehend the music. I mean, music is just an insane amount of logic encoded in the pressure waves all around you in the atmosphere. You can't comprehend the music, but the music can comprehend you. In other words, it can know you and bring all the members of your body into perfect harmony, uh, synchronicity, which each and every member of your body experiences as joy. And Paul just told us that we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Imagine if all of us were dancing to just one song. The lyrics to the Macarena are stupid. These lyrics are better, okay? of these mashup videos all over the internet. I know because I watch them while I walk on, on the treadmill. And they say, they reveal that you can dance. I mean, you, you, don't, need, you, don't, even, you don't have to walk. You, all you have to do is be able to move something, even in your mind, and you can join the dance. But there, there are millions of these things. People put them together and publish them on the internet, and I watch them while I work out, and sometimes they just want to make me cry. Enjoy. And they know that's weird, but maybe I'm getting old or something, and I had to stop and ask myself, what the heck? What is going on? And I think it's this. I think it's the thought that all these people in all these movies experiencing all this pain and joy and sorrow, all this drama with which I have identified all my life. It's the thought that all these people um, with all this drama... Um, 
Well, they're now just dancing to one song. As if it was all meant to be from the beginning. And you see, maybe it is. I mean, maybe heaven is like one of these mashup videos. But the mashup video has always been made and now um, is being made, or, or I should say revealed to us and even as us. You're, you're part of this video, in other words. You, it's, but it's being revealed to you in space and time. In Scripture, heaven is an eternal seventh day, Sabbath rest, in which everything is good and it is finished. Everyone is singing, and reality is a dance to the rhythm of the Logos, who is a lion and a lamb standing on the throne. And we each must stand before that throne, the judgment seat of God. As we've learned, this is the judgment of God hanging on a tree in the middle of the garden in the depths of your soul on the sixth day of creation. And so back to our question, how is it that Paul could know all of that scripture, all that knowledge of good and evil and, and conclude that he should persecute the Messiah? How is it that theologians could read Romans and conclude that God will not save some and in fact endlessly torture most? How is it that people could read Romans chapter 15 and conclude that Paul is warning us not to hope too much for too many? How is it that we know about Jesus and we don't live like Jesus? We're just not dancing. Well, maybe we're listening to the wrong song. Or worse, maybe we're just constantly listening to a bunch of noise. <laughs> whispering. Maybe the snake is still whispering in our ear. Take knowledge from that tree and use it to make yourself in the image of God, to justify yourself. Use it to create yourself and so save yourself. Use it to write your own song to the glory of yourself. Not Jesus, but Mises. Not God's choice. Your choice. Maybe we're singing to the glory of Mises. Mia's salvation. Remember singing to the glory of Mises, which means we must be using Jesus. And so the, the, the music, that's, that's the logos on the tree. The music dies. It's like going to the symphony and trying to capture the music in a jar. It's vanity and striving after the wind. It's crucifying Christ and then like burying him somewhere deep in your soul. Or maybe worse than trusting Mises, we put our trust in Wheezes. Not, not the bride of Christ, but the Antichrist, the imitation Christ, our group. So we make our group right by making everyone else wrong, which makes us worse than wrong and servants of the devil. We're all wrong! <laughs> until we see that God makes us all right. The one on the tree is the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, the word of God, the logos of God, the rhythm of every song, and the snake whispers, seize control. And the spirit of God from behind the curtain in the depths of her being whispers, surrender control. Well, the one on the tree keeps singing, Stop! Shabbat! Shut up! And dance with me! And you see, that is an entirely different way of knowing. Right? It's knowing because you are being known. It's worship. Worship isn't just singing. Worship can be and must be anything and everything you do. You, you do it every day. I know that you do. Worship, but just not all the time. Worship is constant awareness of love and the logic of love, awareness of, of God and his song, and then beginning to sing along. 
Worship isn't just singing, except that everything that's anything is the song of God, the Word of God returning to God, the Logos returning to God as worship. Surrender the Logos, and the Logos returns as worship. So when you worship, you are being sung into reality by God. Actually, you are the dance that He is dancing you are the you and, and the person next to you. So sing to God, and you are being sung by God. That's the title of the sermon. But when you worry about yourself, get stuck on yourself, try to save yourself, you're only trapping yourself deeper in outer darkness. But this is the gospel. Jesus has gone there with you. We took his life on the tree, and yet he gives his life on the tree, and so he descends into our earthen tombs like a seed. I hope you notice that this looks an awful lot like this, which we have been talking about, right? Which should also remind you of this. At the tree, God implanted a seed of faith in you. In faith, you begin to hope to dance. In hope, you come back to the tree and surrender to the Lord of love in worship. In love, you invite others to join the dance. And love, according to Paul, binds all things together. You cannot hope too much. So imagine the entire world dancing to the song of love and love will be dancing you and the people around you, his body, into the kingdom. And so he took bread and broke it. The Logos did. Saying, this is my body. Broken for you. Broken, broken by you. But also broken for you. And, and he took the cup saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Creation, salvation, and transformation is not your work. It's not work. It's worship. You cannot dance the dance unless you do. So may you worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. And how does a heart Prepare room for grace. And how do we not let it? I mean, isn't the room prepared by sorrow? By failure? And so how do we not let it? Well, we, we don't acknowledge that in each other. We don't see it in each other. Let, let every part prepare him room and then uh, bear one another's failures. That means when you see that room and that other heart, you see that problem, you see that sin, you see that sorrow, it's not their sorrow, it's our sorrow. Well, then what are you going to do about it? Well, maybe you could let the life flow. That's like the circulatory system, the love flow. Maybe you could connect to the head. That's the nervous system, the logic. Maybe you could help them uh, connect to the head. But their problem becomes your problem. If you let Every heart prepare him room, and, and I mean every heart. Your heart is expanded into that room, right? Once that happens. And then joy to the world becomes a whole world of joy back to you. By way of benediction, believe the gospel. I think that means that Jesus is saying, Stop and dance with me. Amen.
Yeah. 